And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, January 11th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, insight into the weird situation of the hospitalized defense secretary. Plus, the EPA gets a long-to-do list from its inspector general. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Small Business Administration handed out over a trillion dollars in loans during the pandemic. But it was only recently that SBA's data gave it the full story about how many of those loans that are under $100,000 could actually be repaid. SBA found the further you get away from the initial event, the better the data becomes. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me to discuss SBA's recent decision to reverse course and be more aggressive in collecting some of those smaller unpaid loans. Two types of loans here, correct? The Paycheck Protection Program and COVID Economic Injury Disaster Loans. What went to each program and what are they trying to do here? The COVID-19 IDLE program, commonly known, it's uh, provided loans of up to $2 million to help businesses pay for expenses uh, that maybe could not be met during the pandemic, like working capital needs, fixed debt payments, operating expenses such as payroll. And then, Tom, there was the payroll protection program. A lot of people know more about that. Those were distributed by third-party lenders focused on keeping, basically, people paid during the pandemic. Now, SBA dispersed over $400 billion for the COVID-19 IDLE funds, and borrowers obtained about $800 billion under PPP funds through those third-party lenders. Now, SBA has focused a lot of its efforts to recover loans worth more than $100,000, and the government is forgiving millions of of dollars of these loans uh, and millions of loans, uh, and they're also going after fraudsters, which we know there's been a lot of fraud in these programs and many others during the pandemic, and they're obviously working with legitimate companies who are on the hook to pay back these loans. Now, SBA says so far about 73.6% of all COVID idle portfolio is uh, either paid back their loan, is on payment too low to pay it back, is being deferred or slightly past due. The government projects the the program included an estimate of about a 37% default rate. Now, additionally, Tom, SBA says about 96% of all PPP loan portfolio has been forgiven in full or part. That represents about $761 billion. And then those who haven't been forgiven or, or fully forgiven and do have to pay some of it back, the borrowers have to pay back up to have about five years to pay that back. So there's a lot been going on, but I think it's, it's really important, Tom, to understand what we're talking about here. These are loans in both these programs, under $100,000. Well, it sounds like a trillion dollars is out the door for good anyhow when you get get around the outside of it. But you said SBA did reverse course specifically, and they want to try to be more aggressive in those under $100,000 loans. Presuming they have the capacity to get after them, why did they make that change? The simple answer is data. They have better data. We hear this all the time. Agencies need better data to make better decisions. I, I, you know, every, every vendor, every CIO, every data scientist says that. And I think this is actually a perfect example of that. In many ways, Tom, we can say it's a, it's a, it's a better news story. We can't necessarily say it's a good news story, but a better news story. Over the last three years, SBA's data has just gotten better and better, and it understood what is possible. In this case, it realized that the number of loans under $100,000 was actually much larger than it thought. Its latest analysis, and the fourth since April 2022, found that the default population was about 439,000 loans 
worth about $7.2 billion. Now, Tom, again, prior analysis done in April, September, again in February of 2023, prior analysis considered this initial projected default population about 80,000 loans worth about $1.4 billion. So we're talking about $6 billion more dollars almost that they say, hey, we could recover this. And when they look at that number, all of a sudden that denominator, $7.2 billion, was much higher. And the cost to get that money back was actually did not increase at the same scale. So they said, okay, we this becomes more cost effective for us to go after that 439,000 loans, that, that population. And the, again, the cost to collect is not going to go up in the same way. Initially, Tom, they thought, well, the cost to collect those loans under $100,000, that $1.4 billion, just there, it wasn't worth it, right? And they have authority under uh, certain laws, the debt collection law, that basically says if it's going to cost the government more to collect the money than they get back, you can forgive or decide not sure. to, to get those loans. And I think that's that's initially what they did. All right. Sounds like they did this with a compass and a uh, and a triangle and a crayon on a board to find out where the curves would cross and figure they could get there. And so what do they have to do next to actually get this loan collection underway? There's a couple things that are going on that they're really kicking off. Now, first thing, Tom, is they are giving people and businesses a 60-day goodwill exemption period that started January 1, goes through March 3rd. So they won't be kind of going out, quote unquote, going after people until after March 3rd. Uh, over the next two months, they're going to be talking uh, with these borrowers to help uh, to encourage them to apply for forgiveness, uh, to re- re- be aware of repayment options, uh, looking also at potential hardship repayment plans. And then obviously it's going to also really work with other people to ramp up its own collection efforts. Uh, while you know it has some people and technology in place, it's re- but, but the idea of reviewing and processing collections for 439,000 loans obviously will take resources. And I think that's another thing they're starting to look at and say, okay, what do we need to really go after these loans and how many of those loans can be recovered, how many are, are still in process of being recovered. Let's give people some time. So things really won't kick off the ground until, in, in, until well into March. And early on, Jason, there was pressure by members of Congress about that decision by SBA to not recoup these loans. Did the congressional pressure to go after them play a role in the agency decision? The agency won't admit it, and Congress will obviously, (laughs) lawmakers will definitely take credit for that. But I think there's probably a little bit of pressure on SBA to continue to look at this data, really continue to understand the data. I heard from Senator Joni Ernst, the ranking member of the Small Business Committee, and obviously she was uh, very happy that SBA made the decision to reverse course. Uh, She continues to call on SBA to collect delinquent and fraudulent COVID loans. We know the, the fraudulent activity among these COVID loans is huge across the board. Every agency is facing it, and every agency. You see inspector general reports come out daily, weekly about, hey, we collected this much money. We prosecuted this many people. So uh, I think uh, on one hand, you know, the pressure from people like Joni Ernst, people like Congressman Roger Williams, the chairman of the Small Business Committee, I think have really played some role in keeping this issue in the forefront, in, you know, shining light on the issue. And obviously, uh, Roger Williams told me his committee is going to look into why these loans, this analysis wasn't available previously and what changed. So I think you may see some more interest from lawmakers in in the springtime. Interestingly enough, SBA pushed back against that criticism as well. You know, they say that they had the right under, again, the Section 3711 of the Debt Collection Improvement Act of 1996 to forego certain loans. And they said, listen, we just didn't make a big announcement about this using the 3711 authority because we wanted borrowers to repay their loans. And they feel like Congress and, and some members really 
really put out these public statements creating confusion that SBA was just, you know, forgiving loans, not collecting on loans. And, and SBA says those were actually harming their efforts to, to get people to uh, pay back and not default. Sure. So, again, Tom, it all depends where you sit, whether or not how much pressure it worked and, and didn't. But I think the, the point here is that shining the light on it, keeping it this in, in, in the, the forefront uh, did help keep SBA moving forward, to keep them with the idea of, okay, how much analysis can we do? How much more can we do to really understand the data? And this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, Tom. It's all about the data. Understanding the data can help drive better decisions. And balancing the budget, $100,000 at a time, maybe. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the EPA gets a long to-do list from its inspector general. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Climate change and what is known as environmental justice topped the list of management challenges for the Environmental Protection Agency this year. No surprises, perhaps, but the EPA's Office of Inspector General in its annual listing found several other priorities. We get some details now from Supervisory Auditor Claire McWilliams. Ms. McWilliams, good to have you with us. I'm happy to be here. And this is something that your office does every year to look at the top management challenges, and it seems like they're similar to the ones last year. Yes, that's definitely correct. We identified seven top management challenges this year. Four of them are essentially carried over from the year before, but three of them have changed or were added. All right, let's start with the added ones. One new challenge is is managing grants, contracts, and data systems. This centers on the agency's ability to create and maintain effective business operations for distributing billions of dollars in grants and contracts. We also added the challenge overseeing, protecting, and investing in water and wastewater systems. This includes cybersecurity, which was a challenge last year, but also physical security of water and wastewater systems. And this year, we revised the scientific integrity challenge to include promoting ethical conduct. We believe that maintaining an ethical culture is particularly important given the agency hiring plans to oversee billions of additional funding under the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. And is there any evidence so far in any of the investigations that there has been unethical behavior? It's just something that they need to pay attention to because of all this money showered on agencies through some of these big laws. There have been findings throughout the years, but a main reason we include that is because of the additional funding under the new laws. And by the way, what's the general methodology by which you come up with these questions? In the example of water and wastewater systems, you know, there have been some serious shortcomings in the news throughout the last couple of years with local water systems and their ability to deliver potable water and so on. How did that make the EPA's list of management priorities? Well, we base our top management challenges on the work that we have already done. So that's through our prior year's oversight work. And we also solicit input from EPA senior leadership. We consider U.S. Government Accountability Office reports. We consider issues raised by media coverage, congressional hearings and public statements, and how the EPA's programs address challenges identified in previous fiscal years. I want to go back to grants and contract management and data systems. That's a wide range of things, but the grants and the contracts are big dollars. 
and the data systems maybe track it all, are they in fact related as kind of one complex of issues? They are most definitely related. As you mentioned, it's big dollars. About half of the EPA's annual budget is distributed through grants to states, local governments, tribes, and other eligible entities. The EPA's ability to carry out its mission depends on effective management of grants, contracts, and data systems. And have there been issues there too? Yes. In 2023, I.G. O'Donnell testified twice before Congress, and in his opening statement for the two separate hearings, he mentioned the sizable EPA funding increase and how this increase increases the needs to ensure that grants, contracts, and data systems are prepared to properly administer and report on EPA funds. You must have some incidents or examples in mind. So I do have some examples of the reports that we have recently issued. Today, the EPA OIG released an audit report finding that the EPA Office of the Chief Financial Officer provided usaspending.gov with financial data that was not complete and accurate for fiscal year 2022. I saw that press release come through, so (laughs) we'll follow up on that one later on. Yeah, the agency underreported its award-level obligations by $1.2 billion and underreported its outlays by $5.8 billion. The EPA corrected the fiscal year 2022 reporting in usaspending.gov, but there are still corrective actions to be completed. We're speaking with Claire McWilliams. She's a supervisory auditor at the EPA Office of Inspector General. And yeah, grants are definitely a big item. Any other examples in that grants area since that did get added this year? And it's also kind of a government-wide issue to grants management, even at the White House level. That's something they're looking at generally. Yeah, we we recently had a report go out on the Clean School Bus Program. On December 27, we released this management implication report. It was sent to the EPA proactively to alert the agency of the potential for fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement, even though the oversight work is ongoing. Based on the initial findings, the agency asked for suggestions to help prevent fraud, and we were able to provide those recommendations in this report. We also issued a management implication report in September of 2023 on the lack of readily accessible data for the EPA's Small Business Innovation Research Program. The agency is storing this data in a way that makes it difficult for the OIG and the EPA to access the data and to conduct effective oversight of the program. Let me ask you this. Is there any evidence that hiring and personnel and human capital are an issue? Because with all of this money, EPA has to get people in to execute some of these programs, and they're not alone you know, in that among federal agencies. So is that maybe an ancillary issue that didn't make it directly into the top management issues, but maybe underlies everything they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Staff is a cross-cutting issue that's applicable to many of the EPA top management challenges, and we did mention it throughout the report, specifically in the chemical safety management challenge, enforcement of compliance with laws and regulations, scientific integrity, and in the grant contract and data systems challenges. The increased funding through IIJA and IRA make having adequate staffing even more crucial. And I wanted to ask you about the second item on the list, and that is integrating and implementing environmental justice. We're talking to the EPA and not the Department of Justice. And what is environmental justice in the context of the EPA? And what should they be doing to make sure that they give it? Sure. Integrating and implementing environmental justice, it involves EPA's leadership role in the federal effort to identify and address disproportionately high and adverse 
human health and environmental impacts on low income and minority communities. Got it. And so this is an EPA responsibility? It's not just a responsibility of the EPA. It is across the federal government to make sure that there is fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, national origin, income, and education levels. And I think that would be another area where you would need data and evidence and not just simply the fact that there are two things side by side and therefore there's a cause and effect. Otherwise, you're... Absolutely. And so that gets almost to the scientific integrity issue. That's that's correct. So would you say then that the top seven management issues really are all of maybe a given piece in some sense? Yes. A lot of them are related to each other and are essential to EPA effectively carrying out its mission. Sure. And, you know, when when your partners at the Government Accountability Office land a report, there is often a statement of what the agency reaction was. In the IG reports, is there an agency reaction? And, you know, what do they say about this report? Do they say, no, we're, we're solid on all these? Or do they say, yeah, we probably should take a look at these? I would say that they know these are issues. Before we publish a report, we do send it to the EPA and they have a chance to respond. So their responses are sometimes incorporated into the report and they are aware of the issues and they are working on the issues. Claire McWilliams is a supervisory auditor in the EPA's Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the management report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, White House recognition for a long-serving supporter of STEM education. But first, insight into the weird situation of the hospitalized defense secretary. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Washington and much of the nation has been scratching its collective head over the case of Lloyd Austin. The Secretary of Defense was hospitalized with major surgery, followed by complications, and yet the White House didn't know for a couple of weeks for what might have been going on and what perhaps should have. We welcome Hudson Institute adjunct faculty member and former Defense Department and National Security Council staff member, Ezra Cohen. Mr. Cohen, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for having me. And more than a staff member, you were acting Deputy Secretary of Defense. Acting Under Secretary of Defense for uh, Intelligence. Okay. Well, when the Secretary of Defense is incapacitated, what's supposed to happen here? Uh, well, well, Tom, first of all, I think it goes without saying that uh, you know everybody hopes that uh, Secretary of Defense has a full recovery and that his health improves. It is standard practice within the Department of Defense that if an official Assistant Secretary of Defense or above, uh, which is several levels below the secretary, is out for even one day on vacation, that they sign a uh, letter delegating uh, their authority to their deputy. And this is something that is quite routine, something I personally had to do when I just had to take a day off for personal reasons. And so in the case of the actual secretary, then it is the number two person in the Defense Department that receives that letter? That's right. The order of succession, which is uh, also something that is preset would go to the deputy secretary of defense 
However, if the deputy secretary was also unavailable, it would then could go down several levels below that, uh, depending on the circumstance. It's really important for people to understand this is something that is preset and this is a very regimented process because we need to be prepared as a country to respond to any threats on a moment's notice, which means we have to have several levels of backup plan to make sure that clear military instructions can be given to our forces. And so if Kathleen Hicks, the sec- the Deputy Secretary of Defense, did receive this letter, wouldn't, I mean, I'm just asking as a citizen, wouldn't the first reaction be, well, did anyone tell the White House, especially because this was major surgery with the secretary under full anesthesia for some period of time? I think there are a few things to unpack here. First of all, it's certainly possible that given the secretary's medical condition, he may not have been able to give prior notice that he was going to be uh, incapacitated. And in that case, it would have passed essentially without that letter being signed, but just through notification from his staff, from the secretary's staff, the deputy secretary's staff. The other issue that I think is very odd is that really anybody, no matter what job you're in, if you're told that you're going to be assuming your boss's responsibility unexpectedly for several days, um, most people would probably ask why. At least what's being said publicly, it doesn't look like that happened. Yeah, it gets stranger the more this uh, kind of peels away. And we should also state too, I think, and I'll I'm asking. This is a national security situation, right? If the Secretary of Defense is indeposed, we have two hot wars going on in the world in which the United States has a hand. And, you know, it's not just those low end conflicts, what I would call low end conflicts that are ongoing now. The department also has to be ready to respond to what I would call high end conflicts from huge nation state actors at any moment. And that ability to respond and that ability for the president to convey clear orders and instructions via the Secretary of Defense to military forces is really at the core of our deterrent ability and our ability to deter our adversaries. And so when that chain is muddled, or even if there's a perception that it's undermined, it could be very inviting to our adversaries. And and, and I think that that's really one of the principal concerns here. We're speaking with Ezra Cohen. He's an adjunct faculty member of the Hudson Institute and a twice-time former acting undersecretary of defense. Let me ask you this. In the Pentagon, that's a beehive of activity there. And if you're the secretary of defense, you've got a large personal staff. There's even someone to hang up your coat in the morning. I've seen major generals have people hang up their coats for them, you know, from the outer office, let alone the secretary. How did this not get out? sooner. I mean, there's so many people that were probably scratching their heads that were asking, well, shouldn't we call so-and-so? You're absolutely right about that. And I've seen these reports that the reason the information wasn't properly passed either to the White House uh, or to the deputy secretary is because the chief of staff, and that is the chief of staff of the secretary of defense's office, was also ill. You know, this is just very hard to believe for a few reasons, and you pointed them out. I mean, there are, the secretary of defense has a security detail. He has, uh, there's an executive secretary who brings in papers to sign. He has several military aides, one of whom is a three-star general officer. There's a deputy chief of staff, and there's an office that's just responsible for patching his telephone calls through. And and, and I could go on and on. And the fact of the matter is that none of them either pass the information to the deputy secretary's office or the deputy secretary's office, nobody there, her chief of staff or her military aide, didn't ask the people in the secretary's office for this four or five-day period. It is extremely hard to believe. 
Yeah, and it's likely, and you covered intelligence and national security and special forces in your Pentagon career. One wonders if this was known by foreign countries, because they have listening posts everywhere, probably at Walter Reed. It would be speculation to say anything for sure. However, what I'll go back to is our adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, are, of course, monitoring our level of readiness and our ability to respond to any sort of attack at a moment's notice, and they are looking for those periods of lapse. If they were monitoring this, I think the concern would be that this could be quite inviting uh, of some sort of attack. And that's very concerning, especially because the White House apparently was not aware of the secretary's conditions for days. And I guess that also raises the question of what is the readiness in terms of the command hierarchy of response. That is to say, if all these people are running around, everyone, lots of people knew that the secretary was incapacitated, including the deputy secretary. No one told anybody. What if China said, well, this is a great time to bomb Taiwan. How could we get an air wing in the air or a ship redirected if they can't even pick up the phone and tell somebody what's going on inside the Pentagon? I think the biggest concern is Pentagon and the Department of Defense regularly exercise and prepare for these sorts of scenarios, you know, to respond preemptively to an enemy uh, planned attack. What's concerning, though, is that if the president were to give those orders, if those orders were to come from the White House, there would be ambiguity about who was in charge. And even that ambiguity, if it only lasted for a few minutes, could be a few minutes that we just don't have. And I think that that's really the point of concern. The other issue, too, that I think needs to be looked at by the DOD inspector general and by Congress is whether or not the torch was actually passed completely and appropriately to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. And I think we still don't have clarity on that. Right. And of course, you know, the administration, every administration, every Secretary of Defense, every press secretary, regardless of party, always says we're going to be open and transparent and accountable. These are the words you hear as boilerplate. Who is accountable, do you think, in this situation and what should happen now? Well, there needs to be a very detailed uh, investigation that looks at who was told when the communications that came in and out of the secretary's office, the communications that came in and out of the deputy secretary's office. I believe that that investigation needs to be done by a disinterested third party. I saw that the secretary's chief of staff directed some sort of review yesterday, but of course, that's really not a disinterested third party, and and it's quite uh, unusual that a person that may be implicated in the mistake be the one instructing the investigation and also setting the parameters of it. So I think this is really something that the DOD IG needs to review. And, you know, it's always dangerous to impute motivations on people. If you think charitably, it was just oversight on everybody's part. It's like the uh, child drowning in the swimming pool. If everybody's watching, nobody's watching. And so you have a process situation. Could it be worse than that? My concern is not that there was a intentional malfeasance, but that rather it was complacency. And uh, this can happen. This is a risk of happening at all levels of the military, all levels of the national security apparatus. People can become complacent. And I think given the increasingly dangerous uh, state of the world, we need to be moving in the other direction from complacency. So I think, again, this will all come out quite confident in an independent uh, review. In the meantime, the White House should send the secretary a box of chocolates anyhow. 
I, I hope he recovers. He's had a long, distinguished career. It certainly seems like this was very serious that he had to get this operation uh, after being diagnosed with cancer. But, you know, we all, I'm sure everybody wishes him uh, well. As do we. Ezra Cohen is adjunct faculty member of the Hudson Institute and two-time former acting undersecretary of defense. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, White House recognition for a long-serving supporter of STEM education at the National Science Foundation. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education, STEM, is a critical need for the United States, especially since math skills of American students keep dropping. The National Science Foundation has been funding research into STEM education for many years. My next guest has led that effort as the Deputy Assistant Director of NSF's Directorate for STEM Education, and now she's a Presidential Rank Award winner. Sylvia Butterfield joins me now. Dr. Butterfield, good to have you with us. Hi, Tom. It's my pleasure to join you, and I must say that I am honored to have been named as a Presidential Rank Award recipient. Yeah, it's very august company, and couple of questions. Let's begin with the fact that you have two jobs at the moment besides the permanent job as Deputy Assistant Director. You're also the Acting Assistant Director for NSF's Directorate for Social, Behavioral, and Economic Sciences. That seems like a plateful. Yes, it is. But, you know, as senior executives, we are expected to be able to assume leadership roles across the agency, indeed across the federal government, but I'm really enjoying my time as the Acting Assistant Director for the Social Behavior and Economic Sciences Directorate. It is an area where I have the greatest respect for the work that they do in terms of psychology, sociology, economics, you name it. But we find that it is really critical to consider the impact of various activities on people and society. And that's one of the contributions that the SBE, Social Behavior and Economic Sciences Directorate, can offer. And I imagine SBE has kind of a long border with education, too, for that matter. Absolutely. We have collaborated with the SBE Directorate on many occasions, especially in one area we call the Science of Broadening Participation, As you know, part of our mission is to ensure that we are creating opportunities everywhere for people in the sciences, and that means addressing the diversity of the STEM workforce and ensuring that all Americans have access to high-quality STEM education. And let's talk about the work you've done 20 years now, I think it is, at the NSF in overseeing this area. Tell us what happens in the STEM Education Directorate. What do you do there, and what are the kinds of institutions that receive the funding? That's a great question. So the STEM Education Directorate has four divisions, the Division of Undergraduate Education, the Division of Graduate Education, the Division of Excellence for Equity in STEM, 
as well as the Division of Research on Learning. So we cover the gamut from K-12, which is research on learning, and that includes in-school and out-of-school, to undergraduate, graduate education, and then the Division of Excellence for Equity in STEM is home to programs that target the work in minority-serving institutions. So there's a program for Hispanic-serving institutions, as well as historically Black colleges, programs that address how women are integrated into the STEM workforce and more. So NSF, through our funding, we are supporting institutions of higher education. But in the Division of Research on Learning, what brought me to NSF was a program that focuses on out-of-school learning. The current name is Advancing Informal STEM Learning. So that includes support for museums, science centers, zoos, aquaria, et cetera. And those programs really help to complement what goes on in the K-12 classroom and the support that we provide for teachers, teacher training, and curriculum development. And what's your sense of the state? I mean, I made a statement about it. That's my opinion of education in these fields, because if you look at everything in the future, the economic competition, the military competition, the strategic competition in the world will take Americans that are good at algebra, trigonometry, calculus, and thinking in mathematical ways. I mean, I consider mathematics almost as a language as much as a you know, thing you calculate. And so what are the grand challenges here? That's a great question. I think, and this is just my opinion, I think what we try to do is to take into consideration all of the things that you talked about and the fact that the way that people learn has evolved over the years because there's a lot more integration of technology, artificial intelligence, etc. And so what we try to do is to provide resources for academic institutions to create cutting-edge learning that's evidence-based, using evidence from research to show what are the most effective strategies for learning. And again, we address both in-school and out-of-school learning, but most of the programs within the divisions that I mentioned are focused on learning in the traditional classroom setting. But when I say traditional, I mean in-school only because what's traditional now is very different from what may have been the case when I was in school some years ago. So you need to take into consideration online learning. Think about how we all had to pivot to online learning during the pandemic. You need to take into consideration the availability of resources that make hands-on learning so much more engaging for young people. And I think collectively, the programs that NSF provides funding for, such as the Discovery Research K-12 program, providing resources for models and learning opportunities for K-12 teachers as well as students. And many other programs, the IU's Improving Undergraduate STEM Education, these programs are evolving as the research shows how to best integrate these tools into 
STEM learning. And when I say STEM, of course, I mean science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Sure. We're speaking with Dr. Sylvia Butterfield. She's Deputy Assistant Director for the Directorate for STEM Education at the National Science Foundation and a new Presidential Rank Award winner. And the Presidential Rank Award announcement doesn't say much about the recipients. What is the work you feel that got you the Rank Award here? As you mentioned (laughs) earlier on, you know, I have been at the National Science Foundation for over 20 years. I came in 2000 as what's called a rotator under the Intergovernmental Personnel Act, where you're on loan from an institution to the government for anywhere from one to three years. And I must say that over that period of time, I've had an opportunity to do so much that it's hard for me to summarize succinctly, but I'll say some of the things that I've done, you know, you mentioned early on my role in leading STEM education programs. So I've had the opportunity to develop, manage, and lead programs for K-12 students that are national level initiatives. As the acting assistant director for a year, I spent a year as the acting assistant director for STEM education. I was able to oversee the budget at that time was uh, $1.1 billion. There are 28 programs in all investing in foundational and youth-inspired research with the goal of achieving excellence in U.S. STEM education programs at all levels. I'm very much involved in interagency working groups. In fact, I uh, served as co-chair of the FC STEM Federal Coordination and STEM Subcommittee for a number of years. And I also served as co-chair for FC STEM working groups, such as the Broadening Participation Interagency Working Group and the Interagency Working Group on Inclusion in STEM. I've been division director for what is now called the the Division of Excellence for Equity in STEM. That was my first senior executive level appointment. That was when I was approved to become a member of the senior executive service. And the last thing I'll mention is during fiscal years 2017, to 2020, each agency, as you know, takes part in FEVS, the Federal Executive Viewpoint Survey. And our directorate, we always have to develop what we call FEVS action plans to address areas where we need to improve. And we saw a increase in scores from 2017 to 2019, and then in 2020 and 2021, such that the Directorate for STEM Education received an award for being the number one best agency subcomponent in the federal government based on fiscal year 2021 Fed scores. So I would say, you know, over the years, I've served in many capacities, served on many internal and interagency working groups. But of course, I would not be able to achieve anything without the incredible staff and colleagues that I have had the privilege of working with at the National Science Foundation. So while I was named as the recipient for this Presidential Rank Award, it was definitely a group effort because I've worked with the most incredible people at NSF over the past 20 years. And as a victim of the School Mathematics Study Group, I'd like to ask you, are you optimistic about STEM education, especially math? 
I'm optimistic about STEM education. Between the work that NSF is supporting, the work of our colleagues at the Department of Education, we know that the research that we're investing in will enable us to make the improvements that are needed to see increases in performance across the nation. So someday Johnny can read and Johnny can do calculus. Dr. Sylvia Butterfield is Deputy Assistant Director of the Directorate for STEM Education at the National Science Foundation and a Presidential Rank Award winner this year. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been my pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. On orders from Congress, the General Services Administration asked agencies about their accessibility efforts under Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. The results? Disappointing. GSA found most agencies struggling to meet digital accessibility requirements. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the details. We should point out, you know, 50 years of Section 508. The needs are always changing. What are some of the big takeaways from the latest assessment, Justin? Yeah, I think it's important to note that this assessment was conducted, as you said, at the direction of Congress and the 2023 spending bill, and it was completed over the last year, so it covers fiscal 2023. What it found is that that conformance to the Section 508 digital accessibility requirements are generally pretty low across government. They measured it on a 5.0 scale and government-wide that measured at 1.79. So that's certainly not a gleaming result there. For instance, less than 30% of the most popular federal websites and internal sites, intranet sites, fully conform with the Section 508 requirements set by the U.S. Access Board, so less than a third. Ultimately, 76% of agencies fall within what GSA calls low maturity or low conformance categories for Section 508. And 508 is a moving target, correct? Because as digital services change, as the technology changes, what was fully accessible 10 years ago might not cut the mustard for today's services. Sure, but to be fair, the uh, the 508 requirements are actually based on standards that came out in 2008. And so, of course, agencies yeah. are struggling with their technology modernization efforts across the board in some cases, but these standards have been in place for a while. All right. Well, yeah, 2008, so not so good. Why? I mean, what did GSA discover? The reason is that so many agencies are behind the curve here. Might not be surprising to hear it comes down to staffing and, and resources. The GSA assessment really links those two issues to conformance with Section 508. So out of the 249 federal entities that responded to GSA's assessment, 93 reported having less than one full-time Section 508 staffer. 36 reported having none at all. GSA ultimately concluded that not having sufficient staff, you can't necessarily have good Section 508 conformance. I spoke with Mike Gifford. He's a senior strategist at Civic Actions. He's been tracking this issue for a while. There's just so many places where they've demonstrated that accessibility has been under-resourced by agencies and that more staff are needed and more funding is needed to produce better results. They have a call out in the PDF that says, simply put, Section 508 programs that do not have sufficient staff cannot perform adequate Section 508 work, and Section 508 program resources are low across government. They're acknowledging that this is an existing problem that they have to, to address. It sounds like someone or some staff has to own 508 and keep it up and going. Justin, what's the government doing to make up some of the ground here? 
Yeah, this assessment comes at an opportune time in some ways. The Office of Management and Budget uh, at the White House just a few weeks ago issued a new Section 508 directive that gives agencies really a bevy of different actions to carry out. One of them is being assigning an agency-wide Section 508 program manager. So there's part of that staffing issue and then also making sure that their budgets uh, take into account Section 508 resources. So that's one thing that agencies are now moving out on here in the coming year. One thing to look for is when those fiscal 2025 budget requests come out, keyword Section 508 and see what agencies come up with. And the GSA has been the locus of 508 efforts for many, many years. What recommendations did that agency have for everybody else? The big ones are that they recommend Congress consider updating Section 508 to more clearly define federal agencies that are subject to the law's requirements, as well as to account for changes in technology. Gifford told me there's been a lot of uncertainty around Section 508 compliance, creating a possible opening for Congress here. There's been a lot of uncertainty as to who and what needs to comply to Section 508, who needs to deal with this, and what is the the responsibility for federal agencies, and what are the consequences if a federal agency does not comply. There's lots of federal agencies that are not complying. Congress needs to make it clear what the expectations are of federal agencies. And you mentioned the 2025 budget submissions, which are in theory, any day now, Congress has not even done the 2024 budget yet. (laughs) And so let's assume that there's not going to be a lot of fast action on 508 from Congress. Is there anything the White House and agencies can do just to take this bull by their own horns? These standards have been in place for a while now. There are tools out there, both automated testing tools to make sure your website conforms with digital accessibility standards. And GSA recommends, of course, agencies use those if they're not right now, as well as manual testing methods using folks who who actually have disabilities and making sure that they can access a website or, you know, a a piece of technology that they need to access. And, of course, GSA is recommending agencies take advantage of those. The assessment also suggests that the government look at some sort of uh, government-wide shared service for Section 508 tools so that agencies that maybe can't afford some of these automated testing capabilities on their own could go and get them from the shared service. I think that uh, Claire Martorano, the federal CIO, recently came out with a memo about agencies using federal website design standards kind of to try to pull everybody back to standards in the way the federal government deploys websites. We see this every 10 years or so. Everything drifts away from the standards, Hmm. and an administration wants to snap things back to the standards so the government looks uniform to the public. I imagine 508 could be part of that when people are redoing websites. And I mean, a lot of this is websites because most applications, even internal applications, are accessed through a browser. Basically, we're talking about websites for the most part. That's right. We're talking about websites. And I mean, this issue has become really important post-COVID, of course, because so many agencies started provisioning their services online as opposed to having to go into some office. And so if that becomes the de facto first option for accessing a government service or benefit or whatever, then those websites, obviously, it's even more important for them to meet accessibility standards. And with more and more people working remotely, including those with disabilities, and maybe on smaller devices or even trying to access things with mobile devices, when you think about it, it becomes a pretty daunting technical challenge. And even modern websites have so many links 
and so much fine, small visual detail that, you know, relative to websites of 20 years ago, you really have to rethink the way that you apply whatever accessibility tools are available. Yeah, and I mean, the assessment points out that agencies really need to be thinking about these issues in the requirements phase of when they're putting together a procurement or whatever, and then, of course, in the procurement phase when they're selecting vendors as well to get at that point that it's harder to change things after you already put it out there than when you're actually designing it. And besides, good accessibility is good for not just people simply with disabilities, but people with glasses or people that are aging, can't hear as well as they did, whatever the case might be. Very often, a fully accessible site is easier for everybody. Absolutely. It makes a difference for everyone. I think we hear that a lot with accessibility conversations in general is progress for folks who need it is progress for everyone. Yeah, trust me on that one. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 